Welcome to Lunch and Learn. In today's episode, Bree and I discuss the celebration of Women's Equality Day on August 26th and trace back its roots to the 19th Amendment. We will also share with you our featured follow, an organization focused on bringing a balance of power to our political systems. And finally, we will leave you with a challenge for the week and months ahead. Let's grab some lunch and get ready to unlearn together. In the midst of a pandemic, a black revolution and a white awakening are happening. Diversity, equity, and inclusion educators, Brianna Clover and Dr. Jessica Petty create brave spaces for candid conversations on race equity, focusing specifically on its intersection with ableism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identity, all from the unique perspective of a black woman and a white woman. Hi, I'm Dr. Jessica Petty. And I'm Brianna Clover. In today's episode, Bri and I are going to continue discussing the impact of the 19th Amendment and reflect on what it means to celebrate Women's Equality Day on August 26th. Bree, will you put on your teaching hat today and give us a brief history of why August 26th is when we actually celebrate women's equality? Yes, and I had to do a little bit of research myself. So for over 72 years, women circulated countless petitions, gave speeches, published newspapers, and traveled the country to win the support uh, for the right to vote. They were frequently ridiculed, harassed, and sometimes attacked by mobs and police. Some were even thrown in jail and then brutally treated when they protested. So although the 19th Amendment was ratified on August 18, 1920, it's never it's not official until it has been certified by the correct government official. So finally, on August 26, 1920, the U.S. Secretary of State, Bainbridge Colby, signed a proclamation behind closed doors. I thought this was interesting at 8 a.m. in his own house <laughs> in Washington, D.C. And uh, despite the lack of fanfare at the time, I as I was doing this research, I was trying to imagine women at that time, how they must have felt on that yeah. day on August 26th. Yeah, I can't imagine. I know. So I'm curious how many of the resources you found to better understand the origin of the day mentioned that only white women were guaranteed the vote in 1920. To be honest, none. I had to try really hard to find resources. And I had to be intentional about typing exactly what I was looking for. Hmm. I think you were leading me into this uh, reality that despite the victory for white women on August 26, black women continued to fight for their right to vote between the years of 1920 until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I mean, arguably even yeah. beyond that. Now, right. Yeah. So this conversation that we're having now and that you and I have had in the past, not only in the last episode, but just in our own sort of friendship together, reminds me of my own journey to be more intentional about understanding race and its intersection with my work in gender equality. So if I, if I may, I'd love just to sort of, sort of share with you why this is so important to me. Yeah. So as a white woman, I was very passionate about women's equality and talking about gender rights. And I've, you know, have a, a dissertation around all of this. Mm-hmm. And I felt that my work was really just focused on gender. And so when people would talk about the experiences, particularly of race, I felt as a white woman, one that maybe my voice did not belong in that conversation mm. because that was not my lived experience. And two, I felt naively that they were almost separate issues. And as I continued to do more and more work, it just became so apparent to me that 
when I would say that, well, my work is not around race, my work is around gender, what I meant was my work was around white women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was very exclusionary. And so even though I felt afraid to get into the conversation because I thought, well, maybe my voice doesn't ha- belong here, I realized that I would rather take the risk and be more inclusive and have somebody tell me, you're not using your voice properly or you don't understand this clearly than to just be neutral and try to stay out of the conversation. And so I started to step in and the more I did, the less afraid I became and probably the more passionate I became because you can't, in my opinion, you cannot say that that you are a part of a sisterhood and that you mm-hmm. care about the rights of women without talking about the different experiences of women. We're not all the same. So n- not even just race, socioeconomically, yeah. or if you are a single parent, or if you grew up in poverty. I mean, there's just so many elements. And so to fight for women, I started to realize is you have to fight for all women from whatever place they're coming from. Um, So that's for me why this is so connected Mm -hmm. and so important to me. Well, thanks for sharing that personal reflection. And you're exactly right. Just I get excited and goosebumps almost imagining how powerful it would be if all women of all races, abilities, socioeconomic status really band together to to fight for gender equity and Mm -hmm. equality. I think sometimes we underestimate the collective power that we have. Right. And that gets me excited when I think about that. So we talk a lot about intersectionality and I was doing some additional research online and came across this interesting fact. So I I was aware that the term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, but I, I didn't quite understand what led her to that that term. And um, she first introduced it in a paper in 1989. And she referenced three legal cases that dealt with issues of both racial discrimination and sex discrimination. Hmm. And her main argument was that in these cases, the law seemed to forget that black women are both black and female, and thus subject to discrimination on the basis of both race, gender, and often a combination of the two. And I found this interesting, too, that in one of those cases, it was a 1976 case, General Motors, in which five black women sued them, General Motors, for a seniority policy that they argued targeted black women exclusively. Basically, the company didn't hire black women before 1964, meaning that when seniority-based layoffs arrived during the early 1970s recession, all the black women hired after 1964 were subsequently laid off. Wow. So this was a policy that didn't just fall under gender or just race discrimination, but the court decided that efforts to bind together both racial discrimination and sex discrimination claims, rather than sue on the basis of each separately, would be unworkable. So that's kind of what led her to to coin a term that we have to address the intersection of its race and gender and ability. So I just found that really interesting, just the background and that it's not really, it's a fairly new term for right. us to understand that concept. And it's such an important understanding. And and I think that's definitely when my eyes sort of opened and I realized you can never separate, Mm-mm. you know, whatever you're talking about, even if it's not race, if there is another part of a woman's identity that is impacting her life. And we say we stand up for her. We have to acknowledge that. 
You're exactly, exactly. So thinking about that thought process of how do we stand up for people and, you know, how do we get to equality? I would love to pivot a bit and discuss again, equity versus equality. And we talked about this a little bit in the past, but it's something that I know we talk a lot about in our facilitated workshops and our virtual workshops. And I'd love if you could share with us again and remind us about the differences between these two words. Absolutely. I love to help people understand how these two things are different because as you said, it's so important. There was, um, the first thing that comes to mind is there was an image circulating the internet and it shows three people of different heights looking over a fence line and they're each standing on a stool. That's the same height. Uh, that is equality. So everyone had, despite their different heights, had the same height of stool. And the other image shows the same people looking over the fence, except this time the tallest one isn't standing on a stool and the next tallest one has one stool and the shortest one has two stools. So they all have the same view over the fence and that's equity. And I also like to describe that equality is the ultimate end goal. We, mm-hmm. That's what we want to achieve. But equity is the means to get there. Does that make sense? Is that a, I love that. Yeah. So maybe we should rename this day Women's Equity Day. Yeah. <laughs> and then focus on how we actually get equality for all women. I totally vote for that. <laughs> so Jess, I know you love to drop numbers on us. I'm curious, can you share how are we doing on our journey towards equality? Yeah, so I've done a lot of research around this, and there's great um, resources online to find different things. So I won't belabor us um, with with every aspect of how we're doing from a gender equality standpoint, but one that I do love to really point out because it has such an impact on the quality of life and the ability to move forward is around pay. Mm -hmm. And since money is really what makes the world go round, <laughs> unfortunately, we do have to we have to pay attention and talk about these things, even though sometimes people don't want to talk about pay and, and what they're making. But for every dollar that a white man is making, overall, women are making 82 cents. Mm. But because we can't just lump all women into one bucket, it's important to see how that breaks out. So for every $1 that a white man makes, um, an Asian woman is making 90 cents. A white woman is making 79 cents. A black woman is making 62 cents. A Native American woman is making 57 cents. And our Mm. Latina sisters are making 55 cents for every $1 that a white man is making. So they are earning 45% less than white men. Insane. It really is. I mean, this is such a big discrepancy. And often people think, well, if if I work hard and I go to college and I do these things, then that won't happen. That will be erased. And we're seeing historically women have been graduating from college at higher rates than men for decades. Mm-hmm. So very educated. But we don't see these diplomas actually translating to dollars. And sadly, the pay gap actually increases for women at higher education levels. I didn't know that. I know. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if I would have gotten my doctorate degree if (laughs) somebody would have told (laughs) me that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's funny because people think, well, you know, maybe women aren't asking for the money, right? So it's that men, it's that stereotype. Men are more assertive and they're asking for pay raises and women are not. But consistently since um, 2015, research has shown 
that women, they're asking for promotions. They're negotiating for raises at the exact same rate as men. They just get them at a lower rate and for a lower mm-hmm. amount. And some research that um, investigated why this happens demonstrated that supervisors were more concerned about their male direct reports pushing back on them. Interesting. And sort of, yeah. And, and sort of due to, they attribute it that due to gender norms, these supervisors just assume that women would be more likely to accept less. Wow. Thanks I for know. breaking that down. That's, you, you just, you know, you just tore down maybe three different uh, myths and assumptions <laughs> that we have. Right. Well, that's, that was really helpful. So, and I think the thing for me, uh, why I like to highlight this is that, you know, the pay gap really, it's the long-term impact is that it widens the wealth gap. So in other words, what that means is how much women are worth or how much they own, that is the wealth gap. So mm-hmm. It gets even worse when we look at it from that perspective. Women own 32 cents on the dollar compared to men. Wow. And this is, this just breaks my heart. Black women and Latina women own less than a penny on the dollar compared to white men. Oh, that's just disgusting. Yeah. So, so when we think about, you know, we're built on this idea of meritocracy and you work hard and you're going to get, you know, you're going to get ahead If you're starting out at a penny on the dollar, closing that wealth gap is probably not something you're going to be able to do in your lifetime. No. And and that's why I think we have to be more transparent about pay. And there's the the myth of meritocracy getting in the Mm -hmm. way again. Uh, And this is so important because families are directly impacted when women are earning less than men. Uh, And women are often breadwinners for their family, meaning that their household depends on their paycheck. And this is particularly true for some women of color. More than four in five black mothers, so 81%, are breadwinners. And Hmm. when moms are paid less, they have less money for basic family necessities like rent, groceries, and school supplies. And if you think about this over time, this impacts a family's ability to invest in savings, Mm -hmm. higher education, or even property. And when we look at that pay gap, it's even worse for mothers. And another stat here is that mothers who are paid 31% less than fathers. This inequality holds true across race, geography, and occupation. So Mm. some staggering stats here. Absolutely. So Jess, I know you have done some specific research into how equity can positively impact women in the workplace. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're going to let me talk about mentorship, you better pull up a chair, (laughs) right? Right. So I've done a, a lot of research around this and I, and I really, this is something that I think is incredibly important and it ties back to this conversation around equity and its impact on equality. So Bree, I think I've shared this with you, but I want to make sure that, that we sort of start from a factual place. So mm-hmm. women who have a formal mentor have been shown to be promoted at a 50% higher rate. Oh, wow. And the key word there is formal. So when companies invest in women with intention and their structure around it, it has a really direct impact. Part of it is proximity, right? So Mm -hmm. when people in power, particularly men, have a chance to engage in meaningful dialogue and development with women, they're more invested in their success. So that is a key driver of seeing them promoted. But an interesting thing I think that I always like to point out around this is that 
what we see when we look at how women are mentored Mm -hmm. in our current environment is that mentors of men tend to act more like sponsors and they devote a, a large part of their time interacting with these men to talking about their next role. So they're really preparing them for the promotion. Mentors of women, it's been shown that they tend to coach the women on how they do their current jobs. So do you hmm. feel that difference? Yeah. And I, I'm just, that's been my personal experience to be quite honest. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine we already see that if they have a, a mentor, a formal mentor, that 50% higher chance of being promoted. Imagine if the mentors were actually extending the same types of mentorship. So that yeah. sponsorship, that getting to the next level to those women, how much higher we could go even yeah. beyond 50%. Mm-hmm. So I like to... I like to talk about mentorship when we talk about equity, because it's a great example of how this idea can be applied in the workplace. So if we know that men are already getting promoted at higher rates with the data has shown, you know, for decades, do we shift some of our mentoring commitments towards women and help them reach these similar outcomes as their male peer group? And that's Mm -hmm. the difference between equality and equity. Equality is everyone having a mentor. Equity is maybe having more women have a mentor so that they are reaching the same outcomes as men. This is such a great reminder of how the principles of equity can be applied in the workplace. Uh, And I think we'd be remiss to not also mention the social and cultural issues impacting gender equality. I loved your written piece, Jess, on gender equality as an ethical issue. Hmm. And a lot of the information you shared in there was heart-wrenching, but I think the two biggest takeaways that will still like still sticks with me is one, there's always historical context and a bigger picture when it comes to oppression. And the reality is that in the West, we have the privilege to, as you eloquently stated, and I quote, turn a blind eye to the historical and continual devaluation of females, the cultural oppression, and the systemic barriers women alone cannot change. And secondly, I love your challenge in the end. It gets, in my opinion, it gets to how powerful ideologies can be. How hard would we be fighting if the situation was flipped and males were the victims of gender side? Would that get us to fight with every ounce of our being to eliminate oppression of others based solely on their gender? Would that get us to see that it is immoral and unethical? So I loved in the end how you said time to rock the boat. Hmm. It is. It's time to rock the boat. (laughs) Yeah. When I wrote that article doing the research for that was, it was devastating. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, reading about all of the, the things that are happening um, globally to women and the lack of safety that's afforded to so few women. And even, you know, this summer we saw a campaign around, you know, women empowering women and people were putting up a black and white, white selfie of themselves. But the origin of that was a horrific murder of a woman in Turkey Mm. um, on July 16th. And that's Mm. why it started there. And it sort of lost a little bit of its meaning. And I think sometimes in the U.S. we forget women are not safe. Mm. I mean, when you move beyond thinking about where are they in the C-suite and how are they getting promoted and all of those things, if we don't ensure safety for women... (laughs) we will never reach true equality. 
that's well said, Jess. Thank you for that. And I think August 26 will have even uh, deeper meaning for me moving forward as a, as a time for, for me to reflect on what is it going to take to ensure all safety for women and, and how do we achieve true equality for all women. Thank you, Jess, for sharing this brave space with me today. We are learning so much from others that in each episode, we want to feature a thought leader or resource that is impactful to us because we are reflecting on women's voting rights. And I don't know if you've heard, but it's a presidential election Mm -hmm. year. This episode's featured follow is She Should Run. It's a nonpartisan nonprofit working to dramatically increase the number of women considering a run for public office. And this is so important because women are 51% of the population, yet women represent less than a third of the nation's elected leaders. And we can't expect to achieve the best policies when nearly half of the population is shut out from policymaking. So by tapping into the full potential of the entire talent pool this country has to offer, there will be no problem we can't solve together. So learn more at sheshouldrun.org. You can also follow them on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. After listening to this episode, whether on your own or with your work teams, family, or friends, we'd like to leave you with a challenge. In celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, Skim 2020 is kicking off a campaign. It's a nonpartisan initiative focused on sharing the info and tools you need to vote, no matter how, where, or when you do it. Skim 2020 is trying to reach as many eligible voters as possible. You can be part of this initiative to help voters get registered, request an absentee ballot, or get informed and spread the word. We will include a link in our podcast notes for you to sign up for future action emails. And in the meantime, share a social post or Instagram story with already crafted images and captions. Make sure to tag at the skim and use hashtag we can decide and hashtag skim 2020. We will also include a link to these images and captions in our podcast notes. As we embark on this journey of unlearning, we are so thankful that you're here. We are excited to continue unpacking this conversation around race equity and intersectionality together. Stay connected with us. Visit our website at lunchandunlearn.com and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at lunchandunlearn and Facebook at lunchandunlearn. We hope you'll grab lunch with us again and join us for more brave conversations next time. 